For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me in the room, Jerry? Yes, we can hear you in the room. Great. Uh, so I'm really happy tonight to have Howard uh, Rowan giving the talk. Um, Howard is a longtime uh, ancient dragon practitioner. Uh, before that, he was a practitioner in Korean lineage from Sung San Sunim. Um, Howard uh, is, I see a number of people from Hyde Park at least on Zoom, I don't know about uh, in the room, but uh, Howard is in Hyde Park and uh, is a graduate of the UC Divinity School where he studied, did Buddhist studies and also did, I think, so, studied in social work uh, and uh, is now working, I, I forget, Howard, if it's if you're doing social work or chaplaining right now, but anyway, um, uh, Howard is... Uh, very experienced and knowledgeable about the way. And so thank you very much, Howard, for agreeing to talk tonight. Thank you, Tygen. And I get to let you all down. No, um, thank you for having me again. I always uh, really enjoy having the opportunity to, to, to give a talk. Um, uh, thank you everybody for being here. It's good to see everybody online. Um, can you all hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Great. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess as a, as a, as a segue, um, to clarify what I'm doing now. So I used to, to be a chaplain, um, as a, as a chaplain resident for a year and I would talk about chaplaincy quite a lot. Um, but I'm not doing that anymore, not because I don't care about it, but because I also studied social work and now I'm doing social work. Um, since, uh, November, I've been, working as a medical social worker in genetics um, at Lurie Children's Hospital. Um, so I, whereas I was mostly working with older folks and the elderly when as a chaplain, I'm working on the other side of the age spectrum now, uh, which has been a little bit of an adjustment for me. Um, one other really big adjustment has also been that as a chaplain, for those who are unfamiliar, a chaplain is someone who, very generally speaking, provides spiritual care. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean something explicitly religious either, but it often does look pretty religious. Um, prayer, ritual. Um, sometimes, though, and a lot of times, the, the really touching moments are heart-to-heart are, uh, -heart conversations, uh, where one is touched, one allows oneself to be touched, um, but those are spaces in which the, the, the religious or the spiritual, whatever you want to call it, are, is on the forefront. It's on the table. Um, not quite so much in the social work field. Um, it's taken me quite a lot of adjustment to figure out, and, I, and, I'll, I'll, and I'm going to interrogate that, to figure out how to uh, be a Buddhist, whatever that means, as I do this work that is not explicitly as it seems, uh, spiritual or religious. Um, 
it's it's felt like I've needed to be a lot more like effortful to bring out that part of me and to make it explicit for me. Um, and in some ways I think that's true. And in some ways I think that's false. <laughs> um, I think ultimately really it's always been there. I think it's just the context is very different. The causes and conditions for how I show up in the room and how I show up with others is different and I'm just not used to it yet, but I want to explore that. Um, so, you know, like in social work, I'm on a day-to-day basis. I'm, um, I'm on the phone a lot. I hate being on the phone. It is taking a lot out of me to be on the phone constantly, talking with so many people, meeting all day. But that's what it feels like. During chaplaincy, I might have a, you know, meet five people and have really long conversations that day. Maybe eight, maybe 10. Um, it's not unusual for me to meet more than 20, 30 people a day sometimes new faces in this new line of new line of work um, and to juggle quite a lot of suffering. And it's suffering in a way that I am familiar with, but not in the professional sense. Um, no one expects me to dive into their existential religious concerns. People want me to help them find out how to pay rent. People don't know how to pay for the prescription, this absolutely necessary prescription for medicine that their kid with an incredibly rare genetic disease has. It's incredibly expensive. How are we going to pay for this? How am I going to make this horrible choice? So because I don't get to touch that part quite as much and I have to go to let's problem solve. Let's, find out how the insurance works. Let's find out how to apply for X, Y, Z things. That part gets tabled and it always feels a little lost to me. But it also doesn't feel completely right because I've been practicing for a while now and I don't think it's completely gone. Is it about consciously calling it forth all the time? Um, Is it about aspiring, moving toward enlightenment or awakening or whatever you want to call it? So the title of my talk is Aspiring to Awakening, um, which for some folks um, is, 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 for some folks that's, that's um, are, are familiar with the idea of aspiration for enlightenment. It could be called bodhicitta, um, the mind of awakening. Um, in a really standard traditional sort of vernacular kind of way, right? It's, oh, <laughs> I'm suffering. This sucks. I want to, I don't want to be here. I want to go, over, I want to go over there where the suffering isn't <laughs> that way, not here. That's the very basic idea, right? I think that a lot of us come into the practice with, and I know that that's where I started. I'd be lying if I said, I don't still feel that way a lot of the time. Um, maybe less so now, but I definitely started in this practice with a, this sucks. I want to get out of here. Let's, Let's do this thing where I practice, find the path or whatever, and get to enlightenment and never suffer again. I just feel great, right? Well, I've been doing this for a while, and it's, yeah, it's still hard. <laughs> um, so all this coincided in the last few months with something me and my brother have been doing since December. Um, we decided 
for some reason, uh, to read every day, uh, four pages of the flower ornament sutra, the Bhuva Tamsaka sutra, um, with a plan to complete it, complete reading it in the, uh, within the calendar year. And it's been interesting doing that because, you know, sometimes I aspire to read it and sometimes I don't aspire to read it. Um, but I read it nonetheless and I'm in a different state of mind, different place, different conditions of the day, um, whenever I approach it. And it was really interesting because I, I'm not actually going to focus on this one, but I'm drawing from a couple of things here. Um, for those who don't know, the, the, the Flower Ornament Sutra is a Chinese, well, it's mostly known as a Chinese sutra. It's enormous. If you've ever seen it, you can probably chuck it at somebody and hurt them really bad. A Buddha does not kill. Um, but it's a gigantic sutra. Um, and scholarship suggests that, and it's pretty, cons- you know, the consensus is that it is a, it's really just a bunch of sutras smashed together. Um, but in its canonical form, it is this massive, like 1500 page thing in the most popular hardback version. Um, and it is a, uh, it has a reputation for being a sort of holographic kaleidoscopic text. I'm not going to talk about any of those. Um, Go ahead and read it. Uh, I'm not talking about any of those. The one I am going to talk about is a few days ago, um, there is this one sutra in there. It's not the Ten Stages Sutra, which is the, the more well-known one, but there's one tiny, one tiny one called the Ten Abodes. And they basically just list, like, here's ten things that the bodhisattvas uh, abide in. They're the Ten Abodes. And they list them as... Number one, initial determination. Number two, preparing the ground, and on and on and on and on. There's 10 of them, and some of them don't make immediate sense, like youthful nature, prince of the teaching, coronation. Okay. What's really interesting um, is that two chapters later, they dedicate a ton of pages to just the first one the merit of the initial determination for enlightenment. So they give you this list of 10 abodes that bodhisattvas persist in, live in, uh, uh, embody, I don't know what you want to call it. And then they dedicate a bunch of pages to the first one of the initial determination, or as I understand it, the aspiration for an awakening. And they don't focus anything else on the rest of the nine which I thought was funny. So I'll read a little bit of it. And the Flower Ornament Sutra is full of passages just like this. It's, it's, it's a little, um, it can be a little withering because I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't experience things this way, but okay. Uh, so this is the, one of the first few sections of the, that chapter on the merit of the initial determination of enlightenment. Uh, this is truth wisdom speaking. O child of Buddha, suppose someone were to provide all comforts for all the beings of incalculable worlds in the eastern direction for a whole eon, and after that, teach them to keep the five precepts with purity, and were to do the same thing in the southern, western, and northern directions, the four intermediate directions, and the zenith and the nadir as well. Do you think this person's merit would be much? Indra said, 
Only a Buddha could know this person's merit. No one else could be able to assess it. Truth Wisdom said, this person's merit compared to the merit of an enlightening being who is just determined to realize enlightenment, to aspire, does not amount even to a hundredth, not even a, th a thousandth, a hundred thousandth, a millionth, a hundred millionth, a billionth, a hundred billionth, a trillionth, a hundred trillionth, a quadrillionth, a quintillionth. That merit does not amount to the smallest imaginable fraction of the merit of determination for enlightenment. And then and this repeats for the entire chapter. Like the next thing is he's setting that aside. I'm going to go over all these other examples of really great things that bodhisattvas do and these great people do. And you know what? None of that is anywhere nearly as good as that initial determination for enlightenment. And I'm reading it going, like, I'm inspired, you know, I'm, I'm inspired to aspire. Uh, uh, but I, I feel some pressure here. <laughs> I feel some pressure to, 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 to own up to uh, uh, my initial determination being that fantastic. And so naturally I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe, maybe I've, uh, I'm not appreciating what this initial determination, this aspiration means or what it looks like. Maybe I'm taking that for granted. Maybe I think it's elsewhere. I'm going to read another little bit of it. If you want to know all the truths of the Buddhas, you should quickly develop the determination for enlightenment, the aspiration for enlightenment. This determination is the most excellent of virtues, assuring attainment of the unhindered knowledge of the enlightened. The mental activities of living beings might be counted, and so might the number of atoms in a land. The extent of space might be assessed, but the virtues of the will for enlightenment cannot be measured. It produces all the Buddhas of all times, it perfects happiness in all worlds, increases all excellent virtues, extirpates all confusion, reveals all wondrous realms, eliminates all obstacles, develops all pure lands, produces all enlightened knowledge. If you want to see all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions, and want to disperse from the inexhaustible treasury of virtue, if you want to extinguish the afflictions of beings, quickly arouse the will for enlightenment. And so again, as I'm reading this, I'm going, wow, I, I mean, when I decide to go sit on the cushion, I'm usually feeling kind of crappy. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm developing all the pure lands for all beings here. So again, I keep returning to, well, what, 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 am I, what do I think is missing from that? that spark, whatever it is, wherever it comes from, what do I think is missing from it? That the instant I decide to sit, decide to sit, I don't know if I decide to sit or sitting sits me, that I am provoked or invoke some sense of, uh, uh, you know, deep concern for other beings, that somehow that's not enough, that somehow it needs to look different than how it shows up right here right now as this sort of yearning um as a sort of like hurt even of like well why do i feel I have to feel like this right now i wish it was i wish this looked different so i said i decided to do a little more digging um 
and it's very haphazard digging and by which I really just mean, I just went to Dogen and I'm like, what did Dogen say about this? Um, and there were two fascicles from the Shobogenzo that he writes more explicitly about Bodhicitta, this aspiration for enlightenment, this for awakening. Um, I mean, it kind of shows up all over the place. You can't really escape um, sort of the, 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 for lack of a better word, effortful part of Dogen. Um, but I found that these two fascicles, it really shows up the most. Um, one is called um, the Hotsu uh, Mujoshin, which is the arous- uh, arousing the aspiration for the unsurpassable. And the other one is uh, Hotsu Bodaishin, arousing the aspiration for enlightenment. And for anybody who's curious in the Shobogenzo, they're right next to each other, uh, 69 and 70. Um, the first one is a really, uh, uh, I think it's actually kind of a hilarious uh, fascicle. Um, because it was written, both these were written during the monastery construction period. So when um, what would eventually be called Eheji uh, was being built. And uh, the reason why I find the first one actually kind of hilarious is because there's a lot of teaching in there. Um, he's trying to talk about what it means to to uh, to arouse the aspiration for awakening. Um, and he starts out by talking about how, about how mind is wood and stone. And you start realizing he's he, he's heard a lot of criticism from other people about why are you building a monastery? Isn't isn't Buddhism just about transience and not doing things and 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 letting things go? So why why build a giant temple complex where you honestly right hold money and have a lot of materials and 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 have to build things that are gonna gonna decay et cetera et cetera. Um, so the fascicle is actually a little funny because you can hear the criticism in the back and he's responding to it um, in a way that only Dogen could. So I'm gonna, again, I'm going to read a little bit again. Um, I think that what Dogen shares uh, really hit me a lot. I think it's one, Dogen is extremely evocative, extremely poetic and um, speaks to how I've experienced this aspiration more and more lately and over the, over the last few years of practice, as opposed to where I started, where it was point A to point B. Thus, 80,000 skandhas, all phenomena, become the causes and conditions for arousing the aspiration for enlightenment. There are those who arouse the aspiration for enlightenment in a dream and attain the way. There are those who arouse the aspiration for enlightenment and attain the way while intoxicated. There are those who attain the way when they see flowers flying or leaves falling. Others attain the way among peach blossoms or green bamboo. Some attain the way in a deva realm or in the ocean. They all attain the way. There's a lot more of this like tone right, in this fascicle. And Dogen, this is very consistent with Dogen. Nothing is uh, out of bounds um, for the way, for practice, for Buddha mind, Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it. You could be asleep and you can arouse the aspiration for enlightenment. You could be intoxicated. Precept number five. (laughs) Um, 
and you can still arouse the aspiration for enlightenment. It's tiny little phenomena can invoke or provoke. I don't know which direction it is, this aspiration for enlightenment. And so there's no such thing as like for Dogen that there's only like one time that I aspire and that's it. Um, it's almost like everything, everything encountering you all the time and you encountering everything all the time. It's just aspiration after aspiration after aspiration. The gateway after gateway after gateway. Anything that shows up is an opportunity for aspiration, if not aspiration itself. And so in fascicle, uh, the next fascicle is fascicle 70, um, Hotsuba Daishin, the one that's explicitly about awakening. He defines this arousing as uh, pretty much aligning with the Bodhisattva vows. Arousing the aspiration for enlightenment is making a vow to bring all sentient beings to the shore of enlightenment before you bring yourself and actualizing the vow. Even a humble person who arouses his aspiration is already a guiding teacher to all sentient beings. And I think that's where I think I also, I personally started having a turn in how I understood this aspiration, that it's not trying to get from point A to point B, trying to now find myself in a state where I am being really perfectly Buddhist or something in my social work. When I meet a family in a clinic and they just learn that their kid has a genetic disease that nobody else in this state has, maybe in this country, there is something that happens within me and within that room and between us that is like a deep concern, that is a yearning, that it's like a shared hurt or pain that I can that I can tap into, that I can feel into if I just let myself be touched by it. And that's something really consistent with Dogen, right? Dogen ends up on the Buddhist path because of the death of his mother. He is deeply pained by the by the death of his mother. And there's a tone there's a undertone of sorrow um, and sort of a, a, a bittersweet joy to every everything that he writes. And I'm realizing over time that that's not separate from, that's not different from what I've been doing. Though it's taken time for me to cultivate uh, a, an allowance for it. I, I don't want to call it a tolerance because it's not so much a tolerance, um, but a, like a willingness to to receive it and to receive it through whatever phenomena come come and show up in front of me. I think the most um, provocative part for me um, is this. This aspiration is not pervasive in this world of phenomena. It's neither before nor after. It's neither existent nor non-existent. It is neither self-natured nor other nature. 
It is neither common nature nor causeless nature. Yet, in response to affinity between the teacher and the student, the aspiration for enlightenment arises. It is not given by Buddhas or Bodhisattvas, and it is not created by yourself. The aspiration arises in response to affinity, and thus it is not spontaneous. It doesn't come out of nowhere, just out in the air somewhere. It doesn't, it's not something that like it's embedded inside of you. You have to like yank it out and like uncover it. It's not something that's floating outside. It's a res, it's some kind of resonance with the world. It's some kind of like sympathy and empathy with other beings that you really tap into so that you're not aspiring to get somewhere else. You're just aspiring being with other people. You're breathing with them. That's another thing, right? To aspire is to breathe. You're being there in the room with them. You're being there with people. For Dogen, it's not so much that you desire for enlightenment. The desire, it, the, the, it's right there into the desire. The sorrow is in there. The hurt is in there. The hopes are in right in that desire. It's right in that aspiration. It tells you so much about where you are, where other people are, and how to meet it. Right in the middle of that desire. And you don't have to go anywhere else. <laughs> Which is why Dogen can be so frustrating. Because you're like, you keep slipping through my hands. Because it's right here. So, you know, when I when I sit, right, sometimes I tell myself, like, oh, you know, I got to go sit. I got to go make myself go sit. I don't feel like sitting. I go drag my, drag my ass over and go sit. And, it, and sometimes it does feel like that. And sometimes it feels more like sitting is welcoming me whenever I'm able to make it to the cushion or wherever I am able to just be with whatever is happening in this moment. I'm reminded of, um, I make reference to this a lot in my talks, um, Uchiyama's um, opening the hand of thought. He has this really weird diagram. Uh, it's like a line graph kind of type thing. Um, and he describes Zazen as this line, uh, as this like line. And he has these like branching off paths that represent like you fell, you fell asleep over here. Um, you got distracted with this thought. You fell asleep, and you really fell asleep. And you're dreaming about X, Y, Z. And he's got these weird drawings of not looking people. Um, and he describes zazen that the the point of zazen is not that you stay perfectly on the line, never moving from the line. the 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 point of zazen is the return is that it's that you come back to the line. It doesn't matter that you drifted. It's a fine that you If you didn't drift at all, you couldn't have come back to the line. And so I've, I've over, over, over the years, I've sort of related to that image and with Dogen and this aspiration, right, to, to do Zazen perfectly, to be a perfect Buddhist or something like that. Um, more through the lens of like being read, like a readiness. Um, uh, I've also sort of 
seen it as a sort of being accident prone, um, being ready to fall into whatever wakes me up. Um, and if I trip, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Next time I'll trip again and I'll, I'll wake up. Um, but it's almost like I'm cultivating not so much that I'm on a constant state of awareness or a constant state of, of empathy or, or, or compassion or something, but that I am become more able to be ready when, when the moment arrives for compassion and it meets me. And I think that's how it's come up over the course of this practice or the course of trying to bring this practice wherever I go off the cushion um, and also recognizing that there's no separation between those two on and off the cushion. Um, that the compassion is not the compassion, the, 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 the mind of awakening, um, that living the precepts, however it is that you or I are, are living what we're doing, what this is on a day-to-day -day basis is not somewhere else other than where we're already at. And that has to include the stuff that sucks. <laughs> In fact, that stuff tells us why we're aspiring. That tells us why we care so much. And I think for me, that's the key. It's why we care. It's why we're concerned. And that's why it, we care at first so much about ourselves to the point that we realize we got to give a crap about other people <laughs> and other things in the world. And it takes time to develop that, but it's always been there. So I think that's, I think that's it. I think that's what I wanted to talk about. Uh, I don't know how cohesive or coherent that was. It's been a while since I've given a talk. Um, but thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you all for aspiring with me. Thank you, Howard, very much. Um, I'll just make uh, an announcement that uh, the Flower Ornament Sutra that Howard was talking about uh, is something that we here at Ancient Dragon, we do a monthly reading online here on this website. Um, every, the first Friday evening of every month uh, at uh, seven o'clock. So you, we're up to book 29, I think. We just started a new, we're just starting a new chapter next Friday, next, next uh, Friday. So anyway, uh, if anybody uh, in the room or anybody online has comments or questions or responses for Howard about this uh, ongoing aspiration to, to wake up, um, please uh, share your comments. Good to see you, Howard. Um, your transition from chaplaincy to social work. Um, You've gone from the realm of the spiritual to the realm of praxis, as they often say, the practical. Um, I just want to share something with you, and that's really somewhat, well, the group at large, but um, recently my clinical practice uh, education teacher said something to me that I think is quite relevant to what you're saying. She said, it's when I'm with the patient, it's not the words that matter, it's attunement. 
and maybe you might agree with this, that attunement is the aspiration towards enlightenment. And I'd like to hear your comment on that. Yeah, I haven't heard that one. I I like it. I, that one reminded me of, I, I, I don't know if this is like actually uh, if Maya Angelou actually said this, I, it's one of those things where like, I genuinely don't know. Um, uh, people won't remember the words that you said, but they remember how you make them feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to remember a, a single word of the flower ornament suit. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> did you hear that? <laughs> I'm going to remember how it made me feel. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I do think that there's a, there's a lot of truth whatever that means um, in, in that statement, in what your CP, your, your, your uh, clinical um, education teacher uh, supervisor said, um, it's the moments when I am really attuned, right. Um, with clients and with patients that I, that I, that it one feels good, even if it's really sad and it hurts and painful, right? And it's painful. Um, it feels good in the sense that, like, I saw, I really saw somebody today. And I think they felt seen. But I think missing it is also part of it, too, right? The moments when there's the disconnect, the moment when there's rupture. Um, because there was a point in my life where I, well, there was a point in my life where I, didn't realize I was hurt by the rupture or hurt by the disconnect. And I think I just scoffed it away. Right. Um, And now I'm just so much more attuned to it. Um, And not in a like hypervigilant, Oh God, what if, what if they're, (laughs) they think terrible things about me? Um, Maybe a little bit of that, but much more. Oh, what happened there? And being really curious about it so that when it, when, when some versions show up again, I can meet it with a little more readiness on my part. Not to do it better, just to be more ready. David Ray had his hand up next. Hi, Howard. Thank you so much for that. And it's so good to see you. Um, First, just two comments about the online experience. Some of us have started standing for the service. Maybe others have been doing this for a while, but I just, it has made such a difference for me in feeling like a participant in, in the service. And then another thing that I'm going to start belly aching about is that uh, I'm just more and more aware that the backlit altar means that everybody in the in the zendo is just just a, a dark blob and i know that in 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 the in the ground on the ground it, it might look like a really warm light but but on on zoom in the hybrid experience it, <laughs> a backlit altar is just really really kind of awful um and so howard i loved the thing that you said about accident prone did i hear you say that aspiration is a kind of being accident prone cuz i love that it sounds like being open to all kinds of unexpected things whose meaning I don't understand and that I totally didn't, uh, you know, maybe didn't like, maybe I, maybe I don't greet them with, with joy when they first come into my life. I'm thinking, I'm kind of thinking about, uh, uh, cats. 
you know, and how uh, the reason why cats are great and hilarious is because they act like the accident was intentional. <laughs> um, that's uh, my cats are definitely like that. And I'm sure everybody's cats are some version of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, and, and I'm kind of stealing language, um, but I'd also feel like I've seen this language in many, many places. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't, a Dogen said this and, and I think Suzuki also became really well known for some version of this, of, you know, life is just mistake after mistake after mistake. <laughs> and, and, and I don't think it's just like intentional mistakes. It's like, oops, I think it's also a kind of whoops, <laughs> oop, oop, right? A Midwest ope. Um, because I, I, there's, there's one sense in which aspiration is very intentional, I think. Um, there's, there's a bit where Dogen's even like, there are three minds, and the first one is called discerning mind, the mind of discrimination, right? And he said, that's the mind that you arouse, you arouse the aspiration with. And I'm like, what? I, I didn't expect that one. Um, and there's a sense in which I can do nothing about the aspiration because sometimes it just comes to meet me, whether I'm ready for it or not. And I, I think that's the time when, um, and part of, I think part of it is, you know, you're caught off guard. Right. Um, I th- but I think part of it is also that, that readiness um, to be caught off guard. <laughs> um, uh, being okay with being caught off guard. Uh, Years ago, I would have gotten really defensive about some things that got that caught me off guard, right? Because oh, it's not supposed to go this way. I still have strong feelings about that, um, but I'm more okay with things things catching me off guard because things are more interesting that way too. <laughs> and I think you get to see people uh, in a more improvis- improvisatory light uh, when things are caught off guard. Thank you. Howard, I like what you said about being ready to be caught off guard, being ready to to uh, make mistakes or being ready for some aspiration, inspiration. That's uh, getting ready. <laughs> or I, I don't I don't even know how we do that. It's just uh, being open or something. I don't know if you have any thoughts, more thoughts about that. I'm still, I'm still thinking a lot about um, with Dogen, right? Practice is enlightenment, enlightenment is practice. Oneness of practice enlightenment um, where there is no you do this path and you get to point, you know, you do you walk the path and, and you get to enlightenment. That's how it works, right? It's like, no, 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 the, the path is it. It's not separate from the path. It's in the doing of it. It's in the living it out. Um, it's not that you uh, uh, practice the precepts perfectly and then you become a Buddha. It's, it's that the living out the precepts is an expression and an actualization of, of awakening. Um, it's not separate from the doing of it. Uh, so that, so I'm also thinking about the precepts a lot. Um, 
like one I'm thinking about, I've been thinking about a lot is um, to not harbor ill will, which was, I did not expect that over the last uh, few months, but I'm really angry <laughs> about a lot of the things I see at work. Um, I'm really quite angry and quite hurt, like in both ways, um, by the things I see at work. Um, and to be, to be ready to receive, you know, my anger and my, 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 my desire to harbor ill will toward X, Y, Z. Right. Um, I, it's not that I can never experience it or feel those things, but that I'm ready to investigate it. Um, when it does come up, um, Well, if no one else has questions or responses, uh, maybe we'll do the four Bodhisattva vows. And Howard, thank you very much for a provocative, uh, uh, really inspiring talk.